DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to the Georgia Today podcast from GPB News. Today is Thursday, February 8th. I'm Peter Biello. On today's episode, two Georgia brothers have been arrested in connection with the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Leaders in the State House and Senate want to make changes to Georgia's film tax credit. And First Lady Jill Biden visits Atlanta to talk women's health. These stories and more are coming up on this edition of Georgia Today. Atlanta police have arrested a man in connection with a series of arsons blamed on opponents of a planned public safety training center. 30-year-old John Robert Mazurek was taken into custody early this morning. Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens says project opponents have the right to be heard, but not to put others in danger. They use misinformation and technology to attempt to recruit others into their violent cause. They have a destructive agenda. He said construction of the training center is ongoing and is expected to be complete by the end of the year. Last July, explosives set off at a precinct destroyed eight police motorcycles and attacks blamed on project opponents. Two brothers from Georgia have been arrested in connection with the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Sipane Sardi of Marietta and Seth Sardi of Rockmart have been charged with a felony for assaulting, resisting, or impeding officers. They also face misdemeanors for entering the Capitol and disorderly conduct and physical violence inside the Capitol. More than 1,300 people have been charged in nearly all 50 states in connection with the incident. More than 450 have been charged with the felony of assaulting or impeding law enforcement. Leaders in the State House and Senate want filmmakers to do more to get the top benefit from Georgia's lucrative film tax credit. House Speaker John Burns yesterday proposed major changes to the tax breaks, including shooting in rural Georgia and hiring more Georgia workers. We want to make sure, sure those investments are receiving and creating jobs in our state, in our local communities, but the, for the very best return on investment that we can possibly receive, because at the end of the day, that's our job. Under the proposal, companies would have to meet four of nine goals to receive the top tax credit. The tax breaks cost the state an estimated $1.3 billion and support thousands of jobs. First Lady Jill Biden visited Atlanta yesterday to talk about women's health. GPB's Amanda Andrews reports she spoke with local advocates, researchers, and investors. The First Lady launched an initiative in November 2023 focusing on women's health care and equity. The goal is to help determine where to invest money and partner with researchers to improve women's health. Dr. Tanae Lewis, a professor and researcher at Emory University, served as a panelist during the discussion with Biden. She says she's looking to partner with companies to create more inclusive equipment. So sometimes the largest arm cuff cannot accommodate larger arms. We have larger body sizes in the South. African-American women are more represented in these larger body sizes. We can't assess these women. The Biden administration has previously given federal funds to address women's health issues through the CARES Act. For GPB News, I'm Amanda Andrews. The Georgia House is backing changes to the state budget that would boost state spending, even though growth in tax collections is slowing. GPB's Sarah Callis reports. The mid-year budget adds $5 billion into the 2024 budget. House Appropriations Chair Matt Hatchett says the extra money comes from an increase in revenue and surplus funds. $5 billion 
dollars. You can do a lot of good with $5 billion. The increased money will go towards infrastructure improvement, mental health support, and other priorities, including higher education. The Senate still has to approve the budget before it heads to Governor Kemp's desk. For GPB News, I'm Sarah Callis at the State Capitol. American suburbs are often seen as the keeper of a particular version of the American dream. Good schools, solid infrastructure, and responsive and responsible government. But for many Americans, that promise goes unfulfilled. According to author Benjamin Herald, post-World War II suburbia has become something of a Ponzi scheme. He describes that scheme in his new book, Disillusioned, Five Families and the Unraveling of America's Suburbs. One of those families in the book is from Gwinnett County. Benjamin Herald. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You write here in this book, Disillusioned, uh, that there has been over the last century or so a series of life stages for suburban communities. Um, And that life cycle has primarily benefited uh, white people who were often the first residents of a new suburban community. Can you talk to us a little bit about those life stages? Yeah, I mean, I think what we've seen again and again in America's post-war suburbs in particular is you had communities that were built up really almost overnight. So you had you know, farmland that went was turned into subdivisions and became bustling suburban communities in the span of five, 10 years in many places, really quick development. And those early suburbs, there's two things that are important to remember about them. One is that they were racially segregated by design. That was a matter of both policy and informal practice and you know, really designed for middle class and upperly mobile white families and really gave families like, uh, like mine a really tremendous deal. Like it was a very generous social contract. You got not only cheap mortgage loans and uh, massive tax breaks, uh, but also all of this brand new infrastructure and public school systems that really had a chance to create in our own image. And so there's a reason people were so drawn to the suburbs. Like, it's a great deal. But part of what made that deal possible was putting the true costs of of not only building the infrastructure, but maintaining, repairing, and renewing all of that, you know, all of that community, putting it off onto the future, just onto some future generation. And what we've seen again and again, and particularly, you know, Atlanta suburbs are a great example of this, is that as other uh, communities, you know, black and brown families, uh, immigrant families, et cetera, fought to get into suburbia to get that same deal. You know, right as they're starting to get in, many of these communities are starting to experience a lot of problems. You start to see the bills start to come due for repairing roads, sewers, and sidewalks that are all need repairs all of a sudden because they were all built almost overnight. Um, for, uh, you know, school systems that are slow to change, you know, all of this kind of comes at once. And so the families that have means historically have just left right before the bills come due. Mm -hmm. And what that results in is that the families who come in behind end up not only not getting that same generous social contract, but also in effect, paying for the opportunities that somebody else has already extracted. Mm -hmm. You profiled uh, one family from Gwinnett County here, the Robinsons. At what stage was their community? So uh, the Robinsons are an upwardly mobile African-American family, middle-class family, uh, you know, multiple advanced degrees, both professional jobs, super invested in their kids' education. And so they moved out to Buford uh, in northern Gwinnett County uh, in 2012. And their sense was really like, hey, this is a place where we think we can kind of like buy into that suburban dream. We get the nice house. It's in a good neighborhood. It's attached to highly regarded public schools. We can kind of set it and forget it. And so what they actually ended up experiencing, though, was that, you know, the first signs that something were off started when their oldest son, uh, Corey, uh, African-American boy, started middle school. 
And all of these kind of disciplinary issues started happening all of a sudden. So instead of this kind of like opportunities and grace that I received when I grew up white in suburbia in the 70s and 80s, all of a sudden their child is starting to receive these kind of really harsh punishments and messaging around things like tapping his pencil too loudly in class or, you know, being too rough with his friends and, you know, just kind of normal teenage boy stuff. And it starts to really escalate. And so what the Robinson family really had to contend with is like, hey, we've organized our whole life around being in this community and having access to these public schools. And now they're actually a threat to our child. We see them kind of dimming his light and, you know, kind of telling him that who he is is not okay. And so they're forced to kind of make this decision about, you know, temporarily pulling him out of Gwinnett County public schools, considering private schools, just going through all of this angst because the community is changing on the ground. The families who live in Gwinnett, the families who send their kids to Gwinnett County public schools had changed, but the leadership policy, culture, and practices of Gwinnett County Public Schools had not. And we saw that big picture, you know, around the same time period with the, you know, really contentious fights around the control of the Gwinnett County School Board in 2020 and 22. Race was a factor not just in Gwinnett County, but in all five communities that you've profiled for this book. And some of the decisions involved in living in or moving to or moving on from a suburban community uh, relied on what you described repeatedly as a racial need not to know. Can you describe what you meant by that? Yeah, that um, goes back to a philosopher named Charles Mills, and he he talked about this. And it's kind of, uh, you know, the way I've come to think of it is it's almost like a willful ignorance that white Americans in particular, you know, have a habit, have a tendency of really embracing so that we don't have to reckon with the realities of race in America. Like we're not blind. Was we're, when we're children, we we have these moments and experiences and encounters where we realize, oh, wait, what's actually happening in the world around us, um, particularly for the black and brown people we may go to school with or live in the same neighborhood with or share a community with, they're receiving very different treatment and experiences than we're receiving. And it kind of goes against these ideals of America that we've been taught. And so we try and reconcile that. And often it's very hard to do because doing that means acknowledging the racial advantages that we've received, acknowledging the injustices upon which suburbia, for example, is founded, that history of racial exclusion we were talking about. We don't really have a very good way of systemically kind of incorporating that into our sense of how a community should work and operate. And as a result, we end up, you know, missing a lot of these dynamics. And I think part of that's part of why this moment suburbia is in now is so fraught is because all of a sudden white Americans are really being forced to confront these truths and realities that we've needed not to know and chosen not to know for a really long time. Lots of people profiled here, in particular the white family from Texas, approached their choices by thinking about what was best for their family, not necessarily for the community as a whole. Uh, and, and many of these people, when possible, would simply move their family out of a school system that wasn't working for them rather than fix the system. And this kind of mentality, this kind of just move on when it's no longer a good fit for you or working out the way you want it to work out, it strikes me as rational, but not particularly hopeful for the well-being of the suburbs. I was wondering what you thought. I'd agree with that. Absolutely. I think that Part of the challenge with us recognizing this is many of these decisions that we make as families on kind of a day-to-day level 
Like they make sense. Everyone wants the, what's best for their kids. They want the best future. They want a safe place to live. They want good schools. Like it's, it's understandable that we want all of those things. The problem is that we have designed communities that are predicated on giving as much of that as possible to just a couple generations of families without paying for it and without having a plan for how to extend and renew it in the future. And so, yeah, it's hard because that is really deep rooted uh, in our national psyche, this idea of we have to do what's best for our own families. What we have to figure out is not only how do we do what's best for our own families, but how do we create communities that sustain and maintain that kind of social contract across generations. Benjamin Harold is the author of Disillusioned, Five Families and the Unraveling of America's Suburbs. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you for having me. And that is it for this edition of Georgia Today. If you want to learn more about any of these stories, visit gpb.org news. And if you haven't subscribed to this podcast yet, do it now. We'll be back in your podcast feed tomorrow afternoon. And if you've got feedback or a story idea, we would love to hear from you. Email us. The address is georgiatoday at gpb.org. I'm Peter Biello. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.